Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarterdeck. As we continue with our reading of our book, with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, it's time to continue the attack. The 1st Marine Division has crossed the border and headed into Iraq, and now we're looking into the dates of 20 to 21 March, when Grizzly was in the attack. In our Hero Highlights this week, we're taking a look at the heroism and the story of Private First Class Leonard F. Mason. United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. It's time. It's time. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get in line right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to the quarter deck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. Yes, the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now that we're moving out of Thanksgiving time frame, we can't believe that it's already going to be Christmas, but here towards the end of November, it's always a special time that we take the time to remember the life of Staff Sergeant Vincent Bell, which is one of the younger Marines that we had that I was able to check into the battery when I was back in Sierra Battery 511. And on November 30th was when he gave his life down there in Kajaki in Afghanistan, which was the same area that I was in down there in Afghanistan and to this day it's you know it's still hard to believe that he's no longer here that he's gone but unfortunately you know I know exactly the same spot that he was actually killed in because it was what we called the it was line black that we were in over there or tree line black should I say out of all the tree lines that were over there that was probably by far the one that was most infested with IEDs that were implanted there all the time and so whenever it was time to do a patrol out there towards that tree line, we always had to ensure that, you know, we had everything working and in good order because we had to make sure that we were able to detect the IEDs that were implanted there. But along with that, also on the 22nd of November, every single year, I celebrate my birthday of the Marine Corps of when I graduated from recruit training from Paris Island, South Carolina with Company F Platoon 2045. So it's been a while. It's been a long, long time since I graduated from recruit training. And man, how the time flies, because it seems just like yesterday that I was walking across the parade deck down there in Paris Island, and we were told to be dismissed by our senior drone instructor, senior drone instructor, Staff Sergeant VRL, and they told us to get off the parade deck, get out of here and go away and go home. So it's, it's a while. It's been a go. So if you think about it, that was back in 1995. So, wow, we can look at it. In 15, it was 20 years when I retired from the Marine Corps. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Man, 28 years ago, that is when I graduated from recruit training down there in Paris Island, South Carolina. So as you guys can see, the time does fly and especially now that we're moving on into the holidays, it's a very, very important time and special time, especially to talk to the veterans, talk to your loved ones, the ones you're close to, the ones that you know that are basically going to be alone. Talk to them and always remember 
The VA has a crisis line that is open 24-7 that is a confidential uh, support line where veterans can get their support. And a reminder that all you simply got to do now is dial 988 and press 1, and they're going to be connected to a counselor. And then we'll be able to talk to them 24 hours a day. And, you know, we have so many people nowadays that they don't like talking to people. So the VA now offers a chat line as well where they can simply just text 838255 and be able to talk to a counselor that way to ensure that they're able to get the support that they need and are able to get any kind of assistance that's going to be available because there's so much assistance and services that are available through the VA that a lot of veterans just simply do not take advantage of them because either they don't know or they just simply don't know how to get a hold of these people to be able to find the care and the assistance that they need for them to be able to be taken care of. So, you know, always remember that there's always different types of ways and, you know, signs that you can take a look at, especially with your loved ones of what might consist of them actually being in some kind of a crisis, you know, and you gotta, we got to look at these, some of the signs that we need to look at, you know, especially if, if during this time frame or something just happened and maybe they just ended a relationship and now they're on their own and they're kind of in their own little world and don't know exactly what to do. Maybe they lost their job or they're in, they're not very stable in their housing condition because maybe they're having issues paying their bills now because they lost their job. A lot of people feel a loss of purpose. Maybe they don't feel that they really aren't there to be able to do anything anymore, or maybe they just don't think that they belong or, what they do doesn't mean anything. And, you know, at some point, everybody's going to face some kind of challenge in their life. So you want to make sure that these challenges don't develop into some kind of crisis. So by us recognizing these crises, whether it's for ourselves or for someone that we may know, we it gives us the opportunity for us to show that we do care and help them to find some kind of support. Now, I remember last week I talked about the young Marine that contacted me on the phone about the issues that he was having, that he was having kind of a mental instability during the time frame, And he's a younger Marine. So, you know, at least younger than I am. And, you know, a long time ago, I know that he did in his relationship. So he was on his own and, you know, like every other typical person that may be into relationship, they turn to alcohol and stuff like that on a daily basis. And, you know, that's not the way to go. I learned a lot of years ago and I learned that because thanks to my wife that she noted, helped me to focus and understand that there is other things and ways to cope with things instead of just sitting there drinking all the time because it's not good. And please, besides, I want to be here for a long, long time to be here with her, my son, and even our two dogs. I want to be here for a long time, so you got to make sure you understand that. But on a good note, he is on his way down there to Washington State right now to go ahead and uh, be part of a program that the VA has out there for him to be able to get the support and the help that he needs to help with his alcoholism and any other things that he may be involved with. So wish him the best of luck to go out there and do what he needs to do to ensure that he gets the help and the assistance that is available out there for him. So as we can see, there are many, many, many resources that are out there for the, our veterans to be able to be there and for us to be able to help them to find these kinds of locations. So, you know, the veterans crisis line is that that starting step that stepping stone that we can take to allow them to know that there is help available. And, you know, with social media nowadays, man, you can find all this kind of information on Facebook, on Twitter, everywhere. 
All they simply got to do is just research the Veterans Crisis Line, and they're going to be able to find any contact information. So always remember, so if you know someone or maybe you realize that someone, part of the family or someone that's close to your family that may be going through these kind of situations, give them the contact information to allow them to be able to actually go out there and get the help. So it, it is very important, especially, you know, it is a big thing right now with veterans, with uh the holidays coming up because a lot of people do feel alone. They feel like there's nobody here or nobody there with them because of the things that they may be dealing with. So remember, spread the word, get the word out there and allow them to be able to get the help that they need. So that way they are not alone. And remember the veterans crisis line. All you simply got to do is dial 988 and then press one. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel signs photography. Miguel Sainz is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Sainz will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Sainz Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Sainz will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Science Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Science Photography. Visit Miguel Science Photography online at miguelsciencephotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. Oh boy, last week we talked about how the division now finally crossed the line of departure and actually started heading into Iraq all the way up into Baghdad. Now this week in our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq in 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy. We're going to go ahead and look into the dates of March 20th and 21st as the division actually moved into the attack. And I got to tell you guys, this is the time after or the day after that we, as the 11th Marine Division, continued with our suppression of fire for the infantry as they were moving forward, crossing the line of departure and making their way towards the 51st Mechanized Division, the tank division that was moving towards us down there from Safon Hill towards the line or the border, the line of departure that we crossed over. So let's take a look at and at the 20th and 21st of March as Grizzly moved into their attack to be able to actually head into Iraq and be able to actually complete their mission that they were tasked with. RCT's five mission was to seize the four strategically significant GOSPs of the South Ramalaya outfield, block the 6th Armored Division at the North Ramalaya Bridge, and block the 51st Iraqi Mechanized Infantry Division along Highway 8, RCT-7 would attack to the east of the original H-Hour, less than 10 hours later. RCT-5 attacked through two breach sites, each consisting of three lanes. Just prior to the attack, the Iraqis emplaced a minefield in the middle of the lane of the western breach site. The lane remained foul during the attack despite the efforts of the Explosive Ordnance Disposal, or the EOD teams, and a sniper who shot several of the mines causing them to explode. This obstacle had no significant effect on the attack. 1st LAR Battalion, 
who was supported by the 7th Royal Horse Artillery light gun batteries, established the RCT security zone. This was inside of Iraq and provided overwatch across the RCT-5 zone of actions in the RCT as they prepared to attack. The 2nd Tank Battalion, or Iron Horse as their call sign was, led RCT-5's main attack through the Western Breach site, and they were moving through breach lanes Red 1 and Red 3. Now, Iron Horse attacked quickly through the relatively open desert on the Western flank in order to establish a blocking position that would trap the enemy in the AZ Zerero area. Over the next 10 hours, Iron Horse would push beyond the initial overwatch set by the 1st LAR Battalion and advance into the, an uncovered enemy territory. They attacked along the axis to the west of the oilfield infrastructure, uncovering Iraqi ground at a rapid rate and destroying everything hostile in its path. 27 enemy vehicles and more than 100 enemy ground forces were destroyed in this initial attack. Now, just like LAR did, they were moving at a faster pace as the division had anticipated. So this allowed the division to move forward so much faster. But as we're going to find out a little bit later, we're going to see how that can cause an issue with the supply train as the division is starting to progress and move forward into Iraq. As dawn broke on 21 March, 2nd tanks established their blocking position on Highway 8. This was accomplished with minimal communications with the RCT-5CP beyond RCT-5's reporting. Now, this was successive on all the waypoints and the significant enemy contact. Battle positions tank was 25 kilometers west of Iraq, seconds, which the second largest city, or Al-Bazara, and situated in the rear of the Iraqi 51st Mechanized Brigade. From this position, Iron Horse was capable of disrupting the Iraqi defenses and providing a catalyst for the Iraqis' hasty retreat. The battalion had attacked through approximately 70 kilometers of enemy territory, entirely under the cover of darkness. In just 10 hours, conditions were now set for adjacent elements of RCT-5 to ensure their key objectives. Now, there's one of the main things that the U.S. forces has the advantage in is because we're capable of still operating in pitch dark. With our night vision equipment that the division has, we're able to see the enemy. Now, as far as we knew during that time frame, the Iraqi army or any of the people that were fighting with them did not have this capability to see at night in the same way that we did. While Iron Horse moved to trap enemy forces to the east, RCT-5's main effort of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, or 2-5, followed the trace organized as a mechanized task force. The battalion peeled off to the North Ramalaya Oilfield Highway Bridge, establishing a blocking position. Along the way, 2-5 secured the North Ramalaya Oilfield infrastructure. The blocking position of 2-5 was important to block any attempts of the Iraqi 6th Armored Division to reinforce or counterattack south of the Saddam Canal. 2nd Battalion gained contact with the enemy and soundly defeated the estimated brigade sized force in the North Rumalaya, capturing the brigade commander. With 2 5 and 2nd tanks in their blocking positions, the enemy was held at arm's length while the remainder of the RCT moved in swiftly to capture the oil fields infrastructure. 
1st Battalion, 5th Marines, 1-5, followed by 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, attacked through the Eastern Breach Site, Lanes Red, 4 through 6. 1st Battalion attacked to seize the two southmost GOSPs and the South Romalaya Intermediate Pumping Station. Just before the timetable had been accelerated, the battalion staff met to conduct a last-minute review of their attack plans for the following day. During the session, the Marines on radio watch handed the battalion commander an urgent message. Lieutenant Colonel Padilla read the note, then looked up and said, Guys, we're going right now. The Iraqis' action to ignite oil wells in south from Malaya required 1-5 and 3-5 to cross the border immediately in order to prevent the further destruction of the oil infrastructure. Lieutenant Colonel Padilla gave some final instructions and the meeting began to disperse. Before everyone could hurry off, he stopped everyone and said, Hold on. Chaplain, where are you? Lieutenant Cash, the battalion chaplain who had been standing behind Lieutenant Colonel Padilla during the meeting, led everyone in a short prayer before they left to carry out the mission. After gearing up, the battalion crossed the line of departure and entered into Iraq. One hour prior to crossing that line of departure, the battalion was notified that there would be 30 minutes of preparation fires before they crossed the line of departure. So artillery was going to provide fire support and some of the air support to allow them to make sure that they had a clear path as they crossed that line of departure and started heading into Iraq. The battalion quickly prosecuted known targets with available assets focusing on air defense artillery and indirect fire assets. Three kilometers into Iraq, Alpha Company encountered an Iraqi tank platoon supported by dismounted infantry. These were quickly destroyed by Javelin, tank main guns, and AAV upgun systems. The battalion simultaneously secured the southmost Goths, number three and four, with Bravo and Charlie companies repeatedly. During Bravo Company's attack led by Captain Jason E. Smith, they took over 200 EPWs with little resistance. EPWs are enemy prisoners of war, you know, for those of you that don't understand the lingo of what it means. Once GOSPs 3 and 4 were secure, Alpha Company conducted a forward passage of lines and turned east to seize the strategic intermediate pump station. Once committed to the attack against this pump station, the battalion Alpha Company found the compound defended by more than 100 enemy soldiers. They enveloped to the objective and utilized artillery dual-purpose improvised conventional munitions, DPICMs. Now, these are just like the wrap rounds that I talked about last week, but the DPICMs, what they do is they have landmines inside of them. Now, depending on the size of the round, they could be small little uh, mines. Uh, they're what they look like. They pretty much look like batteries. If you if you picture in your mind a D cell battery, that's what it looks like. So it's very important that when you shoot them downrange and the enemy steps on them, they are going to explode. So as we were moving forward and progressing through the battle zone, we had to ensure that when we were maneuvering that we avoided these because it's never 100% guaranteed that all of these mines, when they detonate, they're all going to explode. So we found a lot of them still on the ground, and this allowed the enemy to step on them and they would ignite. But the purpose of these is when they fall out of the rounds. So in other words, the cap on the bottom of the artillery shell pops off all of these little mines pop out of there, and as they're hitting the ground, it looks like a ton of different small explosions 
to ensure that they are being able to actually be able to destroy the enemy as they are detonating into the ground. So that was one of the main things that we wanted to make sure that happens. Okay, and these were all used for suppression of the enemy as they were moving forward. It became clear that the enemy had established a well-prepared trench line and bunkers throughout this complex. Again, so this is why the DPICMs were very important because they were able to go into the trenches and actually annihilate the enemy as they were waiting for the actual infantry unit to move forward through there. The Alpha Company commander, Captain Blair Sokol, moved forward with the company, directing a methodical sweep of the maze of the enemy positions, utilizing rockets, grenades, tank, and small arms fire. His men followed his direction and rapidly moved through the complex and into adjacent positions. Marines are conditioned to face danger and hardship, but nothing can adequately prepare them for the loss of one of their comrades. As the company continued its systematic clearing of the area around the pump station, they again met enemy resistance. During the fighting, the division suffered its first killed in action in Iraq. The division lured and mourned the loss of 2nd Lieutenant Thera L. Childers of Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment. He was fatally wounded when an Iraqi vehicle mounted troops launched a surprise attack using civilian trucks. He died while doing the Marine lieutenants have always done in combat, leading his Marines in an attack. Wrestling control of the critical infrastructure, objectives would enable the rapidly resumption of oil revenue for the newly liberated Iraqi people, giving hope to an entire generation of Iraqis. In the conclusion of the attack, the company had destroyed an estimated enemy battalion and captured in excess of 100 enemy prisoners of war. Corporal Breton P. Gross received wounds in the same action. As the Marines destroyed the remaining enemy resistance, Junior officers and NCOs leading from the front would be the hallmark of the division's action from the opening gamut in Baghdad. After the pumping station was secure, Charlie Company moved south to see Scott's number six without further resistance. Once all the objectives were secure, each company's attachment of British Royal Engineers and EOD specialists utilized their specialized gear and training in the center and secure of the facilities. They proceeded to shut down the facilities without incident. So as we can see, even in the early stages of the fighting there in Iraq, they were already starting to use civilian vehicles and everything to ensure that they were able to attack the units as they move forward. Now, this was something that throughout the years to come, as the division continued to be there in all the years that the armed forces were there, they would continue to use this tactics because it made it difficult to be able to recognize which of the civilians that were roaming around were the actual enemy. Because as we're going to see here in the future, you're going to see that the Iraqi forces dumped their uniforms and changed into civilian attire to blend in with all of the civilians that were there. So it made it difficult for us to realize and understand who, who really was the enemy that was out there. While 1-5 moved out of the attack in the Goths in 3 and 4, 3-5 attacked to seize Goffs 1 and 2 just to the north. Once through the breach lanes, 3-5 noon to the west of 1-5, bypassing the fight for the southmost Goffs and quickly seized Goffs 1 and 2 that were further north. These Goffs were the largest of the entire Iraqi National Patrolling Production Capability 
The Iraqis defended these with conventional artillery and infantry forces, as well as a large number of uh, fire trenches that were located immediately adjacent to the strategic infrastructure. These fire trenches caused significant obstruction of many of the key points in the oil field infrastructure, in some cases, severely limiting rotary wing air support. The effects of the MEF and the division fires from the previous night had obviously dampened the will to fight of the enemy at the remaining GOSP. Kilo Company, commanded by Captain Mike Miller, called in a closed airstrike on D-30 Battery East of GOSP-2, then moved just beyond the burning oil trench and dismounted. Captain Miller's Marines meticulously cleared GOSP-2 area, moving through numerous bunkers, trenches, and fighting positions to round up nearly 200 Iraqi APWs. Lima Company, commanded by Captain Scott Meredith, secured GOSP-1, experiencing no enemy resistance. Later that day, 3-5 was relieved in place by 1-5 and moved to Battalion TAA West of GOSS-1. Now, looking back, Lieutenant Colonel Mundy, the commander of 3-5, had to say, opening a gambit, and this is what he told his Marines. Three things stand out that night. First, the spirit and enthusiasm of the Marines when ordered on a very short notice to conduct a mechanized night attack. Ten hours earlier than expected was very impressive. Basically, they said, great, let's go. Second, the reality of this war definitely hit home when I heard Fred Padilla call in his KIA, 2nd Lieutenant Childers. And finally, the friction of war was, as usual, ever-present and very frustrating. We had two breaks in contact while moving the battalion to the start point, and at one moment nearly lost our Alpha Company command group when the AAV C-7 they were traveling in inadvertently blew its Halon fire extinguisher system, forcing the Amtrak to stop, dismount for 10 minutes, while the staff and crew threw themselves on the ground, choking and coughing to clear their lungs. We looked back at the next day and laughed about it. But as time, I thought I had lost my staff principals, and they could faintly hear the ghost of my basic school instructors asking me, what now, Lieutenant Colonel? So even his mentality and everything, we can see that things happen, especially like that, what he's talking about with that AAV that inadvertently blew its uh, halon system, this fire suppression system, and the Marines had to jump out because they were choking because of the way the system is intended to be. So it was a good thing that they were able to get out and they were able to do what they had to do. Despite the limitations of haze and smoke, RCT-5 enjoyed uncommon rotary wing support from the Marines of HMLA-169. They're known as the Vipers and HMM-268, the Red Dragons, throughout the campaign of Baghdad. With Cobra and Huey gunships above, the CH-46s readily to rapidly evacuate the wounded. RCT-5 was never at a loss for combat power and motivation from 3rd Maw. The habitual relationships built during peacetime began to pay dividends, beginning with the first engagement. 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, CSCC-115, and RCT-5 command elements also crossed the Iraqi through the eastern breach site in early on March 21st. 
Through the early morning hours, the RCT consolidated its objective and turned to processing the hundreds of EPWs they had captured. 211 established firing positions in the north of Ramalaya, from which they could support either the blocking positions maintained by 25, oriented to the north, or the enemy's 6th Armored Division was, or 2nd Tank Battalion, oriented to the east, any elements of the 51st Mechanized Division seeking to escape. As part of the division's scheme of maneuver, RCT-5 also controlled the movement of 1st Reconnaissance Battalion and RCT-1 through western breach sites and their assigned zones of action. Each in turn, 1st LAR Battalion led Recon Battalion and RCT-1 to the vicinity of the Rumalaya airfield where they were released to screen RCT-5's western flank. The visibility compressed timeline, uncertain enemy sit, and C2 challenge created no shortage of fog and friction last night. They said the battalions did a superb job across talking and improvising. As I write this, we are a position to accomplish assigned tasks. We got the first one under our belt and stand ready to support RCT-7 and then continue the attack onto Baghdad. So it's very, very important that all these commanders can see and understand exactly what was going on. So they're able to brief their Marines because they need to understand exactly what's going on as well to ensure that they're going to be able to succeed and continue to accomplish that mission. Notwithstanding the accidental timeline for the attack and the extraordinary poor visibility in the area of operations, the RCT had accomplished its initial combat mission with minimal loss of life or equipment. By 0956 Zulu time on 21 March, the desired end state was achieved, with all four GOSPs secure and the blocking positions in place. Battle Dashman's assessment and interviews with EPWs captured during the attack confirmed the pre-H-hour estimates of brigade-sized enemy forces in both the north and the south of Rimalaya oil fields. The enemy forces in the south from Malaya oil fields were primarily dismounted infantry, but were supported by T-55 tanks, mechanized vehicles, service-to-air missiles, air defense artillery, mortars, long-range artillery, and multiple launched rockets. With the 1st UK Division's successfully operation to seize the critical oil infrastructure on the A-1 Fall Peninsula, U.S. Special Operations Units securing the offshore export terminal, and now RCT's five successful action to seize the South Rumalaya Goss. The only critical infrastructure task remaining was the Zubrao Pumping Station Complex, which was known as the Crown Jewel, in RCT-7's zone. With the successful securing of the last key node, the division would have achieved their first strategic success and contributed greatly to settling the conditions of the free and prescriptions Iraq in the future. It was RCT-7's turn. 21 March was known as the Judgment Day for the 51st Mechanized Division. On 21 March, while RCT-5 was engaging in the South Rumalaya oil fields, the division issued a frago, tasking RCT-7 to attack the zone and destroy the 51st Mechanized Infantry Division in order to prevent the retreat of this unit into Al-Bazara. The timing of the attack was set for 03 Zulu time. Simultaneous with the 1st UK Division attack to Um Khazar, 
on the Marines Division's eastern flank, this attack would be the hammer of the anvil already established by the RCT's 5 and 2nd tanks. In their blocking position of the west, sealing off the retreat for Iraqis hoping to escape and come back and fight another day. During the hours of the preceding attack, the division conducted shaping fires using Pioneer UAV in a direct support role to the division. From the live feed of the division CP intelligence and fires, representatives were able to find targets, adjust fire, and conduct assessments of the key targets throughout the whole entire zone. The division was able to find and kill a large number of enemy in RCT-7's path, including artillery, infantry, and T-55s in a defensive position along RCT-7's intended attack routes. This was a fine example of a classic division's fire shaping fight in the advance of the RCT close fight. The close relationship with the division had established with the VMU squadrons was now paying off. In the observed deep fires with rounds on target. The stated goal for the shaping fight was for the RCT to simply have to wade through the area of the body parts on their way to the objective. The shaping fight had a significant impact on the willingness of the enemy to stay and fight RCT-7 only hours later. So now the division was proceeding to engage the enemy in that 51st Armored Division to ensure that they were going to be successful. And with the blockades and how they had everything black to the rear of them, they were going to ensure that there was no possible way that they were going to be able to escape and retreat because that's one of the things we did not want them to be able to get away and then come back and fight another day because now they were ready to go because they had a time to replan everything. So as we can see, it's starting to shape up and going to be a good day for the 1st Marine Division as they continue to annihilate the enemy and make their way down into Baghdad. Hero Highlight Private First Class Leonard F. Mason, United States Marine Corps Private First Class Leonard Foster Mason, 24, was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry in action when, despite serious wounds, he single-handedly charged and wiped out an enemy machine gun position on Guam on 22 July of 1944. He died of his wounds the following day aboard a hospital ship offshore and automatic rifleman he had participated in the initial landing on Guam on 21 July. Leonard F. Mason was born 22 February 1920 in Middlesboro, Kentucky and attended public schools there. He later moved to Lima, Ohio, where he worked for the Superior Body Works. After enlisting in 1942, he trained at Paris Island, South Carolina. He went overseas in October of 1943 and took part in combat on Bougainville with the 3rd Marines, 3rd Marine Division, prior to sacrificing his life on Guam. Secretary of the Navy James V. Forrestrow presented the Medal of Honor to PFC Mason's mother, with his two sisters witnessing the presentation. The quarterdeck. What developments the division has made now that they've crossed the border and they've secured everything that they needed to do basically on that very first night of 
fighting against the Iraqi armies and all their tanks and all their little air support and stuff and everything. So everything is basically done and secured on that very first day. So a very successful, successful day of fighting for the division, or should I say night, because everything was done that night on the 20th and 21st of March. But it's leading towards a successful campaign as they make their way all the way into Iraq for that initial engagement with all those forces of the Iraqi army that were out there. Now, in our hero highlights, we, t we talked about the story of this young warrior, Private First Class Leonard F. Mason and the things that he did. And it just continues to amaze of all of these warriors of the past that earned this Congressional Medal of Honor and how many actually came out of World War II. That the things that they continue to do and it just continues with the ethos of the mentality of the Marines that we continue to have today. So along with that, we can see how the Marine Corps has truly not changed throughout the years in the way that the Marines think and their mentality on how they continue to be successful in whatever mission that they decide that they want to do or they're tasked with because they need to accomplish it no matter what. As a reminder, I want to go ahead and thank all of you loyal listeners that continue to listen to the podcast here every single week. I hope that everybody had a great Thanksgiving, that we had a week off from the podcast. But again, we're back this week. And always remember that you can listen to our podcast on any of the podcasting applications that are out there. And those of you that do listen on Spotify, you're able to participate in our questions every single week to ensure that you participate in the polls and everything else that we have going on with the podcast. If you are new, thank you very much for joining us. Make sure that you join us as well on our Facebook page at the Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs. And you can leave any comments, any questions as well on there. And we'll go ahead and make sure that we answer those on next week's podcast. So until then, I hope you guys enjoy the last past couple of days that we have here in November. And as we move on into December, and have a great week. Enjoy it with your family and enjoy your weekend. Until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.